the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week, in the first half of the show, I'll be looking at the growth in electric vehicle sales in Ireland. In the second part, Joe Brennan of the Irish Times will join me to discuss Dennis O'Brien's sale of the Beacon Hospital in Dublin to Australian asset manager Macquarie. But first to electric vehicle sales. Last year, sales of EVs in Ireland rose by 45% and prices are coming down, with competition from Chinese maker BYD forcing established players such as Tesla to cut the prices for new EVs. To discuss the latest trends in the market and whether the government might reach its target of 1 million EVs on Irish roads by 2030, I'm joined by the Irish Times motoring journalist Neil Briscoe and Brian Caulfield, Professor in Transportation and Head of Department at Trinity College Dublin. I began by asking Neil to give an overview of the electric vehicles market in Ireland and what consumers here should expect to pay if they're planning to switch over. Well, it's all changed at the moment because we've, we've reached a point where I, I think electric vehicles have reached a certain level of normalcy among certainly a lot of buyers, not the majority of buyers yet, it has to be said. But, you know, buying an electric car it no longer leaves you out on a limb in terms of you know how people might think of you or indeed how, how you might think of yourself. So they're, they're becoming much more normal. I think the good news is that the prices are finally starting to come down for new uh, EVs. We're seeing dramatic falls in the raw materials costs. Batteries are becoming much, much more affordable to make. Um, And obviously, we're seeing enormous competition from the big Chinese brands now starting to make bigger headways in the European and in the Irish markets. And that is forcing the, the big European, Japanese and Korean manufacturers to start trimming their prices to try and compete. Um, I, I think in terms of where we stand in 2024, we have about run around about 100,000 electric vehicles on the road now. I think we will see that continue to accelerate in 2024. But I think what we have seen, particularly through 2023, is that the initial burst of triple digit percentage growth in the sales of EVs slowed dramatically last year. I think it will slow another little bit uh, this year because I think there is still a bit of a gap between those who are keen to get in early on the trend and the vast bulk of the mass market that isn't quite ready to make that commitment yet. Right. Okay. And now just looking at some uh, CSO statistics for last year, the the proportion of electric vehicles last year um, licensed for the first time was 19% versus 15% in 2022. So you can see the direction of uh, travel there. And it went from about 15,500 vehicles to 22,500 vehicles. Now, I think the government's target by 2030 is to have a million electric vehicles on the road. You're saying that we have about 100,000 at the moment. So we're we're 10% of the way there, a long way to go, and uh, only six years to go as well. Are, are we going to meet that target, or does that target even matter? I think we're probably not going to meet that target, and I think the government has kind of quietly accepted that to be the case as well. And actually, the real target is probably more like about somewhere between 600,000 and 700,000 electric vehicles on the road by 2030, which would be a significant proportion of the actual, you know, the the sitting car park, as it were, which is around about 2 million vehicles on Irish roads at any one time, give or take. So it's still a a decent-sized ambition to get that many people into EVs by then. Obviously, by the time we get to 2027, 2028, 
the majority of the cars that will be available for sale will be EVs. So that will start to have a big effect on the market. The likes of uh, Ford and Volkswagen and uh, Alfa Romeo and Opel and so many others have already committed to going fully EV in the European market. Some others are holding back a little bit yet. They're still hedging their bets somewhat. But uh, in general, by the time we get to 2030, you'll only be able to buy a new EV anyway. Right, okay. Now, let's talk about the players in the market. Everybody knows about Tesla. It's been around quite a while. But there's a new kid on the block, if you like. It's Chinese. It's called BYD. And it's actually the biggest manufacturer of EVs across the world. What impact is is it having on the Irish market now? I think in terms of its impact on the Irish market, it's been initially quite significant, but it, it's it's still very much in the growth phase, which is a fact that may be slightly terrifying for some of the more established car manufacturers. Uh, I mean, in January, BYD was the 17th best-selling brand uh, in the country at the time of peak car sales for the year, uh, which doesn't sound like much, perhaps, but that, that puts it ahead of the likes of Mazda, the likes of Citroen, the likes of Volvo, the likes of Lexus. So, it, you know, it's making some pretty big inroads. It's arriving with some generally quite impressive models. And crucially, they're very well priced. The, the basic version of their sort of Volkswagen Golf-sized hatchback, which is called the, the Dolphin, and please don't laugh, um, that is, it, well, when the basic, basic version arrives in a few months' time, that will be priced from as little as €25,000. So that is obviously having its own sort of impact on the market. Um, in terms of BYD's size globally, it, it, is a, it is an enormous company. Its engineering resources are simply massive. And of course, Ultimately, one way or another, it's backed by the Chinese government, so it can't fail. So, uh, you know, that, that is a big issue for European, American, Japanese and Korean car manufacturers with which to deal. Yeah, I actually visited its facility in Shenzhen in 2019. I was part of the EY Entrepreneur of the Year uh, trip to Hong Kong and Shenzhen. And it's a huge, I mean, it's an absolutely huge facility. Now, BYD wasn't really known by uh, those of us on the trip. Back then, it was, uh, you know, this was pre-COVID and, uh, and all of that. But it certainly is uh, making a bit of a splash in the market here. Brian Caulfield, uh, I might bring you in at this point. Maybe you could just sort of compare how Ireland is doing on this journey towards electric vehicles and the switch over compared with other countries. So we're on a similar path to most other countries. We'll often hear about Norway in the media saying that Norway are the, the darlings of the EV world um, because they have huge amounts of resources that they can throw at it. Um, but most other countries are on a, a similar kind of trajectory to us. Some countries have cut back on the grants like we have as well. And then they do see this kind of plateauing of of EV sales because of that. Um, but the thing, you know, BYD coming into the market is great because every European country has this target of this amount of electric vehicles and a switch over to happen as quickly as, as I suppose we're looking to happen here in Ireland. Um, but the big issue there, as Neil said, is, you know, how realistic is this 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 changeover to happen in Ireland and equally in other countries? Um I suppose most countries and governments kind of see that the electric vehicle is an easy way to decarbonize transport because you're just swapping out one technology for another and you're not really making any change in the transport system. You're just changing the fuel type. But with populations growing, etc., you know, that then has a knock on impact of just more congestion. And a lot of the European cities and we saw plans here last week in, in, in Dublin um, to, to remove the cars. So switching over to an electric car, yeah, it does reduce emissions, but uh, the long term inner cities will it make much difference perhaps not because most european cities are going the same way as say for example paris and and are ambitious here in dublin yeah and you know what's the future for fossil fuel vehicles if you've got a a petrol or diesel car and they're still going to be available 
for sale for a number of uh, years to come. Do you think at some point the government is going to ban those vehicles from the road just to get rid of them completely out of the ecosystem or will they still be with us in 20 years, 30 years time? I think they'll eventually phase out. I suspect what will happen is that the prices of petrol and diesel become so high in the mid 30s that, you know, most people will switch over to to an electric vehicle. But, you know, I think it was 20 percent of all vehicles last year had a plug associated with them. But that meant that 80 percent were still dependent upon um, diesel or petrol. And vehicles that we're making now are, are, are much better than ever before. They could last 10, 15, maybe even 20 years. So those vehicles will be still knocking around our roads, causing the emissions that we we need to reduce. So that's a real problem. Um, and and how we do that, and I don't think we can ban them. I don't think a government would be brave enough to come out and say, look, you know, there's an amnesty and start, start bringing in your petrol and diesel cars and we'll swap them out for something electric. I just, it, the scale, the cost, it's just something that I think is unfeasible. Yeah. Simon Cooper, the columnist in the FT, I don't know if you ever read him, but he had a very good piece uh, a few weeks ago about how, and we published it in the Irish Times under a syndication deal, but he had a very good piece about how EVs weren't the future of transport in cities. In fact, it was going to be electric bikes and maybe, you know, old school bicycles. It was going to be scooters. It was going to be buses and taxis and uh, maybe carpooling and and maybe other forms of uh, transport as well. Would you go along with that thesis? Yeah, he's 100% correct. We need smaller electric cars, um, shared electric cars as well, that we share the vehicles. Um, these cars are very expensive. A car, no matter how it's powered, spends about 90% at least of its time idle. It's a very wasteful asset. Government are pumping a lot of money into promoting electric vehicles and we're probably only getting about a 10% benefit out of them. If we were getting the same benefit out of solar panels or, or, or wind turbines, we'd stop putting them out there. I think he's right. I think smaller, more nimble, shared electric vehicles are the way forward Um, and not just only a car. You know, I think electric bikes, electric cargo bikes, a lot of the research that we're doing showed that they could be a massive game changer in cities like Dublin. But that's in the cities where we drive very, you know, we drive very short distances. Uh, It's out in the country when you look, say, into Mayo or Donegal, where the distances that people drive to commute or to get to school is probably three or four times what it is somewhere like Dublin. And then this brings in the big problem with EV targets and the EV sales to date that almost 90% of them are in an urban area. They're in Dublin, they're in Cork, Galway, Waterford and Limerick. So the target is to sell a million electric cars. That's fine. I I can make my peace with that. Um, If our target is to reduce emissions, we're not doing it right. Uh, We're selling loads of cars. If we want to reduce emissions, we should be selling electric cars in the places where people have to drive the longest and furthest and have no alternative. How do we do that? How do we do that? We become more targeted and we could become a little bit more nuanced in our incentives. Um, I know nuance in, in, in any type of government policy is something that's often lost, but we start to target them. We start to target them in rural areas. Scotland are doing that. They're targeting electric grants, electric car grants in rural areas for the people that are driving longer distances. That's one way to do it. The other thing about it as well is there's a, a massive equity piece to look at too. So the majority of people can't afford an electric car. Even though the prices are coming down, it's still a gap for them to be able to afford them. In France, what they've done, they actually closed down the system due to overpopularity, was that you know people on a certain income living a certain distance from their work that you know that perhaps they had to have a car, they were given an electric car for, I think it was about €100 a month. So this was to bridge this equity piece that 
research that we've done in Trinity has shown that, you know, the majority of people that buy these electric cars are living in very wealthy parts of the city. So they're getting a benefit from the taxation. So I think we need to be more nuanced. We need to be more targeted and we need to be looking at the just transition piece. Um, We can't be leaving people behind with diesel cars in rural Ireland that will only end up costing them a huge amount of money in the future. Brian, do you have an EV yourself? I do indeed, yes. How's the range? It depends on the weather. Um, so in the summer, I could get 310, maybe 320. Um, and um, right now, the last time I was in it, I think it was 280 was the range at, at 100%. Right. And what kind of journeys have you done? Have you done some sort of cross-country ones and how has that worked out? So just as last weekend, I'm doing a research project um, with the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland. and We're putting in mobility hubs, so shared electric vehicles. So I had to do a couple of site visits. So I think I did about 400 kilometres. I had to charge maybe four times. And that was okay. Two times it was okay because, you know, I just rolled in and there was a charging point there. But then the last time there was there was a non-EV parked there. The the way the the ESB charging stations were kind of configured, there was four plugs, but only three cars could park. So there's an awful lot that we need to learn um, uh, about how and where we charge and how the charging points are set out. And we just need as many new charging points as possible. Um, it's the... I've said this before, we don't have range anxiety anymore on EVs. We've charger anxiety as to whether or not we can get that, get to those charging points. But another point as well is that all of the electric companies have brought down their prices when it comes to you know domestic electricity. The same hasn't happened um, with the EV chargers. It's it, look, they, they went up and they stayed up. Yeah, Neil, what about that uh, point about uh, charging points around the country? Um, what are the various service station providers doing to roll out an increased number of uh, uh, charging points? Well, we have some of the bigger firms, the likes of Ionity, uh, are planning uh, expansions in the Irish market. ESB has been saying for the last couple of years that it's going to uh, roll out many more charging points and many more fast charging plazas, in fact, where you can, you know, you have sort of six or eight rapid chargers all at the same time. And the likes of SSE are getting in on the game too. But I think it has to be said, there's an awful lot of promise and not an awful lot of delivery. I was talking to the guys at SSE recently, and they are saying that the critical aspect of all of this is assurance of service. The fact that, as Brian was just saying, when you roll in, you want to know you can charge when you get there. And what we desperately need to do away with is this constant uncertainty of is the charger going to be available? Is there going to be a queue? Is the charger even going to be working? There are maps and apps that in theory can help you with that. They're not always the most useful or the most reliable sources of information. So that needs to be taken care of. And yeah, as as Brian pointed out, the price. Uh, We were promised last October that prices on EV charging, uh, public EV chargers would be coming down and it still hasn't happened. And that needs to be seriously looked at. Now, second-hand car values are uh, another point, aren't they? Um, we talked about BYD bringing down the price of uh, uh, EVs in the Irish market and the likes of Tesla and so on, I suppose, will have to follow. Otherwise, they'll be uncompetitive. That has a knock-on effect for second-hand car values, yeah. which hasn't probably hasn't really been tested yet in the EV sense. Yeah, it, it, it is having a serious effect. And in fact, really, it was Tesla who kicked it off because it was Tesla in the last 18 months who started dramatically cutting the new prices of their cars, particularly the Model 3 and the Model Y. Model Y, the electric SUV that was the, the biggest selling car in the world last year. Tesla did that for various reasons, according to Tesla, uh, including passing on savings in production. But really, it was to compete in China with Chinese brands. Uh, and obviously to lay down a competitive level for competing in the US and Europe with those same Chinese brands. So uh, what we've seen since is that, yes, 
the Chinese brands, the likes of BYD, the likes of MG, which you know it's more of a traditional UK brand, but it is Chinese owned these days, have been entering the market with much reduced prices. We've seen Volkswagen cutting its prices. Uh, we've seen other EV selling brands cutting their prices to try and come down and meet both Tesla and the Chinese. And that has had a knock-on effect on second-hand prices, because why would you pay an inflated second-hand value for an EV that was sold at, say, €50,000 a couple of years ago, when today you can buy that same EV new for €40,000, maybe even €35,000. So that that's a significant issue, and it is having a knock-on effect on trade-in prices, not necessarily for those who bought on a PCP, who are to an extent, but not totally, protected against fluctuations in the second-hand value. But anyone who bought outright or on personal finance, yeah, it, it, it's definitely an issue. Yeah, and we talked about charging anxiety. Is there also anxiety around battery failure? Uh, this seems to be an issue for a small number of people, I suppose. Uh, if your battery goes in an EV, uh, are, you, are you completely snookered? Can it be replaced? No, it can be replaced. Um, and I think there is, I think this is a worry that has been vastly overinflated. Um, yes, there is the potential for battery failure. Yes, there is the potential for significant cost in the event of battery failure. And you can be talking about five-figure sums to do a complete battery replacement. That said, full, complete, total, rip the battery out and stick a new one in replacement is actually pretty rare. Generally speaking, what can be done is individual cells, individual bits of the battery will fail, and those can be taken out and replaced. It's still not cheap, but it can be done. And in fairness, the costs aren't out of line with the kind of costs that you would associate with a diesel or petrol vehicle if you had, say, an ECU failure that needed to be taken out and replaced. That's easily a four-figure sum job to do. So I think the whole worry about battery longevity, which generally speaking so far has been shown to be much, much better than was ever anticipated, um, and long-term battery survivability, it's a bit overblown. Uh, Brian, just going back to you, I mean, hybrids were popular there for a while, weren't they? And a lot of people obviously had the option of falling back on fossil fuels if if need be. The uh, anecdotal evidence was that people weren't bothering to charge up hybrids or not much anyway. I don't know if that's uh, still the case. I mean, what's the role of hybrids in, in all of this now? I think hybrids were a transition vehicle um, away from from pure diesel and and petrol towards towards electric, and I think they perhaps fill, fulfill their role. And I think government see that as well because the the grants that they've they're given have completely kind of dwindled um, uh, away. They're still very popular because people do see them as a transition vehicle. And if you're driving around a city, you know, the majority of your, your driving can be done in the, in the electric mode. But I think their purpose has probably been, been filled and we should be moving now much more towards just pure electric vehicles. Mainly because, you know, the again, these vehicles are built really well and they could be knocking around for another 20 years and they would still have some element of petrol or diesel required for them. And as hard as our targets are for 2030, the ones for 2040 and the ones for 2050 are going to be even more difficult, especially if we have this, you know, fleet of vehicles, even the hybrid ones that are still requiring petrol and diesel. We get generate billions every year from fossil fuel taxes and from the sale of cars, uh, vehicle registration taxes and other uh, forms of levies that are uh, imposed on motors. How are we going to replace that, Brian? in the round when we have a fleet of electric vehicles on our roads? 
I think what's going to have to happen is the, you know, elect, if it, they're all electric, they're going to have to be treated as if they were petrol or diesel and, and motor tax increases. And we will have to do along the same lines as we would have done before for, for petrol and diesel cars, for electric cars, because as you say, there's going to be a massive gap in the finances because uh, of everybody switching over to electric. It's something I think the government are, I've seen reports on, I've seen that maybe, I think it was maybe two billion that they were talking about, but how you bridge that gap especially when we've never had to spend more on transport um, in terms of, say, public transport, nine and a half billion for a metro, probably a billion for, for a light rail system in Cork. Um, how we bridge the gap, it's going to be very difficult. I think what will have to happen is that we have to perceive these cars, regardless of how they're charged, as I've said before, as cars that cause congestion. And by 20, I think it was a 2040 in Dublin, they expect the congestion to cost 1.5 billion a year. So we're going to have to start to, to price them in such a way um, that we deter use in the city centres, but that they're seen as cars as traditional ones would have been. Are you in favour of the, the plans for Dublin city uh, centre transport? You know, we have these um, restrictions now that are going to come into place on the keys and other parts of the city centre. And we have the bus connects plan which i think some people are only really waking up to now and the impact it's going to have on 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 road infrastructure but also on uh, local communities as well in terms of you know front gardens uh, going or some houses maybe uh, being demolished so first of all on the dublin city plan i think it's a very a very ambitious plan i think there's an awful lot a massive amount of good in the plan um what the council want to do is very similar to what other cities want to do right across the world. And they want to re- remove cars from the city centres. One of the big kickbacks that came on it was that people felt it wasn't democratic and that people weren't, there was a public consultation, but people felt that they weren't part of it. And that, that seemed to be the big kickback. And that's because of the local government we have here in Dublin. We don't have a directly elected mayor. So in Paris, if this were something that was coming in, that there, there would have been a vote on. And I think something like that would be very important to get everybody's buy-in as opposed to, you know, the city manager, him bringing in this big, big new city plan with Eamon Ryan's backing, obviously. Um, so that's that's the, the thing about the city plan. I do think it's really good, but I do think better consultation perhaps is required on those types of things. Um, on Bus Connects, yeah, people are starting to wake up and realise Bus Connects is going to be a massive project for the city. The buses changed their their numbers. That's only, that's a very small part of Bus Connects. The big part is going to be putting in very direct bus corridors into the city but not only bus walking and cycling as well it's going to reach every corner of the city but not only dublin all of the other cities uh, as well it will impact upon and it's the reason why we had to do the dublin city plan um to to take out the traffic was because there's no point in spending billions on all these bus projects when there are buses then being delayed because of a few cars that want to, to rattle through the city center okay final point to you Neil, if somebody is considering buying an electric vehicle, making that switch from a fossil fuel car, what's your key piece of advice for them? Key piece of advice is do your research uh, and buy on a PCP so that you are at least to some extent insulated from fluctuations in secondhand value. Um, I, I would not go down the uh, the route of taking out a personal loan or buying for cash. Uh, definitely buy on PCP. Okay. And any brands in particular that you would highlight? Well, to be honest, my favourite car of all of last year, um, including combustion engine vehicles, was the, uh, the Hyundai Ioniq 6, uh, which I just think is is gorgeous, good to drive, incredible range if you buy the, the, the larger battery version, uh, and just an absolute, absolutely brilliant car. I think it'll be seen as a landmark car, actually, in, in, in many years' time. Uh, so, yeah, if you've got enough cash to be able to afford one of those, go and get one. All right. Neil Briscoe and Brian Caulfield, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Gary.
I'm going to take a short break now. In a few moments, Joe Brennan of the Irish Times will take me through Dennis O'Brien's sale of the Beacon Hospital in Dublin. Back in a few moments. How can harnessing the power of AI help drive your business? At EY, we combine leading business expertise with cutting-edge technology and capabilities. Working directly with you to plan your strategy, we will accelerate your AI-enabled transformation. To learn more, visit ey.ai forward slash ie. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Dennis O'Brien this week sold the Beacon Hospital in Sandyford County, Dublin, to Australian asset manager Macquarie for more than €400 million. Euro. Joe Brennan of the Irish Times covered the story and he joined me on the line to discuss the sale, Dennis O'Brien's likely profit from the deal and to size up his remaining business empire. I began by asking Joe to run through the Beacon Hospital deal. Yeah, so I suppose news um, broke this week that uh, Dennis O'Brien is selling the Beacon uh, Hospital, which is basically an asset that he acquired about a decade ago. It was one of kind of a number of kind of big assets that uh, Dennis O'Brien managed to get hold of more than a decade ago taking advantage of companies that had uh, high levels of debt in the wake of the financial crash. And one of these obviously was was the Beacon. So he basically took control of the Beacon by taking control of buying, acquiring at a discount. We don't know the exact price of about 105 million of, of loans tied to the hospital. This was a hospital that had been opened in 2006. The loans were outstanding from, from Ulster Bank and also from the then majority owner of the hospital, a, a US hospital operator called UPMC. He subsequently kind of injected about 95, he essentially kind of swapped the debt that was owed to him. So he took on the liabilities, the debt, and he subsequently injected about 95 million of equity into the Beacon Hospital, essentially kind of replacing uh, much of the debt that was owed to him, which improved the uh, the, the balance sheet of, of the company, allowed it to kind of take on more debt uh, from Bank of Ireland in the subsequent years as they went about kind of growing the, the business and, and, and increasing its, its, its scale. So in 2020, the company went about acquiring the neighbouring Beacon Hospital, um, just right beside adjacent uh, Beacon Hospital, and has been looking for planning, received planning permission from Abor Panola last year to uh, redevelop the, the, the hospital into a, a 70-bed unit, which would add additional capacity to the existing Beacon Hospital, which is about 250-odd beds at the moment. And it seems that Macquarie, uh, the Australian uh, financial services company that has moved now to acquire the, the, the business for somewhere in the region of between 400 and 500 million, made a bid, an unsolicited bid last year. And it seems to be around the time when uh, the Beacon Hospital was looking to line up funding for that potential or that, that planned expansion uh, and redevelopment of the, the adjacent Beacon Hotel site. So that's where it, it came about. Yeah. Now, Joe, you've been doing a bit of digging just to try and figure out what Dennis O'Brien has made from this transaction in terms of a pure profit. Tell us about that and give us your best assessment of uh, what kind of profit he's made. Yeah, so if you look at the the range at which the asset is, is believed to have uh, sold for, uh, or on the cusp of being sold for, between 400 and 500 million, if you use the lower end of that, the 400 million, 
And if you deduct the equity that was invested into the company by him in 2015, which was about 95 million, deduct about 80 million of loans that are owed to him. And you also deduct the bank loans and additional loans to to other uh, shareholders in the company. We're talking in the region, we expect in the region of, of uh, 100 million euros plus in terms of pure profit from the actual sale for, for Dennis O'Brien. Right. Any sense of why Macquarie uh, wants to get into this business? I mean, the private healthcare sector in Ireland has been a, a tough one to make money out of, hasn't it, over the years? It has. And, and if you look at the, the company itself, the Beacon Hospital, on a pure net basis, it has been loss-making over the, broadly loss-making over its, its life lifetime. But it has been generating decent enough EBITDA. But it has built up, I think, in the region of about 60 million euros of brought forward losses and that will be an asset obviously to the company if it, it turns a profit meaningful profits in the years to come but it is yes of course it's a uh, it is a difficult business but then with an aging population it is a a, a business that over time and with an expansion uh, and and greater kind of uh, hospital needs it is something that you would expect that would generate a level of return for, for the investment over time. Yeah, although, mind you, hard to predict, isn't it, if uh, Slauncher Care comes into play and a lot of question marks over that, the government's plan, um, the, then hard to know uh, what impact it's going to have on private hospitals. Joe, uh, just in terms of Dennis O'Brien's business empire, if you like, he's been selling off assets in recent years. What's left? Yeah, so just even going back there, looking at the kind of the three kind of um, main assets that he he acquired, going in by taking on the the debt of the company, largely taking on the debt of the of the company. If you look at, uh, you have the Beacon as one. Another one is Topaz, which is a uh, which was a, a fuel retailing company. It was acquired. It basically had about three hundred million of borrowings from from IBRC. He acquired that debt back in twenty thirteen for about half the the original value of the debt. Went on to to acquire SO Ireland and sold on that business in twenty fifteen when it kind of comprised about four hundred and sixty uh, stations to a Canadian group Cush uh, Tard. And that deal was estimated to be worth up to four hundred fifty million euros, including including debt. That company was rebranded as, as Circle K, as we now know it. The other main asset that was acquired is uh, Octavo, that was uh, formerly known as Sideserve. He continues to own that. That was a business he acquired. Again, it was indebted to IBRC. It had about 150 million euros of loans. He acquired that in 2012. The deal saw about 119. It was a controversial deal at the time. It saw about 119 millions of the 150 million euros of debt being written off and him paying 45 million for, for the asset. The most recent kind of figures for that company, it's uh, generating about 200 million euros of, of revenues as of 2022 and EBITDA of about 50 million. Now, some of that, of those earnings would come from his Digicel operation in the Caribbean. And obviously, uh, in recent times, we've seen bondholders in that company take control of that business. So you'd have to question what level of revenue Octavo would get from uh, Digicel in, in the years to come. Also in recent years, um, in 2021, he sold his Communicore uh, Media Group. That is basically a group of radio stations. Uh, sold that to Bauer Media German Group uh, for the region of about 100 million. And two years before that, in 2019, he sold his 29.9% stake in independent news and media. That was a stake that had been built up between 2006 and 2013 at a cost of about 500 million euros. He sold the stake for a price of 43.5 million, basically 
crystallizing losses, about 450 million on that asset. Remaining kind of assets. So he's the only real major trading asset he has control of now is Octavo. Most of the other assets he has are property type assets. So he has the Quinta de Lago uh, golf resort in the Algarve in Portugal. He has another resort up in northern Spain. He has uh, Ballina Hinch Castle in County Galway and a, a collection of other kind of property interests. Joe Brennan, thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Neil Briscoe, Brian Caulfield and Joe Brennan for joining me on the show. John Casey produced this episode with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on X, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. The Irish Times Inside Business Podcast in association with EY, building a better working world.